Welcome to The Reserve, a news and thoughts podcast from the Central Verse. I'm your host, Caleb Nygaard, and today is episode number 40. Uh, Neil Irwin is the chief economic correspondent for Axios and author with Courtney Brown of the daily lunchtime newsletter, Axios Macro, of which I'm proud to say I've literally not missed a single one. And given the fact that I subscribe to an ungodly amount of, of newsletters, that is... Uh, uh, quite a, uh, saying a lot about Axios Macro. Um, he's also the author of one of my favorite books on the financial crises, uh, on the financial crisis of, uh, of eight, nine, seven, eight, nine. Um, a lot of those books are there, you know, there are a dozen or 20 or so of the books about this crisis. And they, a lot of them read very, very similar. The Alchemist is, is different. And it, it's, it's got these really cool overlapping stories of, of Bernanke and, and Mervyn King and, and, Trichet, I can't remember. I can never say his name right. The uh, European Central Bank guy. So really cool. Highly recommend that book to anyone that hasn't picked it up. Uh, but anyways, I'm delighted to have uh, Neil on the on the show today. Neil, welcome to the reserve. Thanks, Caleb. Glad to be here. So as I've mentioned before, the title of the podcast comes from the old uh, Alan Blinder joke, where upon telling people he was going to work for the Fed. Uh, the Federal Reserve, they would respond with something like, oh, I'm glad they've got someone like you to take care of those national forests out west, <laughs> um, which I, I just love. Uh, and I have to say, in preparation for today's talk, it, it made me realize that if there actually was a central bank national forest, it just might be Grand Teton National Park, which has been up and down the news uh, within the central banking world, as it always is, but also um uh even penetrates uh the, my uh family and friends that don't follow central banking have even heard about this uh so that's what we're that's what we're that's why i've invited neil on to talk about so i wanted to start uh before we get into jackson hole and, and all that excitement i did want to ask just some kind of like inside baseball questions about the back-end process for creating axios macro you're, you're you're a couple of months in i believe what what is that like what's the day in the life of of writing axios macro yeah, so we we envisioned this newsletter that again, as you said, uh, goes out every weekday around lunchtime as a, uh, a kind of one-stop shop for uh, if you're a busy person and you know making your way in the world, uh, you know in business and in whatever field you might be in, um, you need to know the macroeconomic backdrop in which you're operating. What's the Fed going to do? What's going to happen to interest rates? What's happening to growth, to jobs, to incomes, to wages? All of these things. Um, and and we believed that that a daily uh, sophisticated uh, kind of digestible concise uh, email newsletter would uh, would would serve that need and, and be a useful thing for uh, people who are maybe not deep specialists in the Fed and all this stuff, but but yep. need to understand the the kind of waters in which they swim. And um, so that's the goal. Uh, so the way we do it is, uh, you know, it's kind of a dual track thing. I, my colleague Courtney Brown, where uh, she's my co-author. We, um, you know, sometimes there's news and it's obvious what we're going to do on jobs day, you know, we're yeah, going to look right. at the jobs report and try and analyze the jobs report, CPI, uh, most of the major data like that. That doesn't happen every day, of course. Um, you know, a lot of days there's not a, an obvious piece of news. For those we, you know, we plan things in advance. We we are developing themes, trying to figure out, you know, the, the intersection of, of economics, of policy, of uh, politics, of business of finance, how all those things fit together, the gears of global capitalism, and what can we do to kind of do a big picture explanation of how the world's working and how the world's changing. So sometimes it's more big picture things that we work on for, for days or weeks. Sometimes it's reactive to the news. Uh, you know, we try and try and be, you know, very much fulfilling that goal of 
telling people what we think they need to know about about you know global macroeconomics on a given day. Yeah, and I think it's and I think it's succeeding in that. You came from you've had a you know this is a, a number of uh, of spectacular um, positions covering both the financial industry and and the Fed at, at different organizations. Uh, I I, I got to ask was there much of a transition coming to Axios and they're real famous for the the smart brevity and I know they're on a big tour pushing a new a new book about that writing process. Did that come? Was that pretty, you know, natural to to fall into? I find it personally as a reader a very clean and nice way to 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 get through it. How was it on the writing side? It was pretty. I mean, it was definitely a change, and you know, we use a lot of bullet points and a lot of uh, yeah. kind of uh, formatting stuff to try and make the uh, information digestible and and really easy to consume. And um, you know, I've I've worked in different formats before. I started out as a straight news reporter at the Washington Post. Uh, shifted toward more analytical writing, uh, then went to the New York Times and did that. I, you know, wrote a book, wrote a couple of books, yeah. Um, yeah. which is its own format, you know, much longer sure. form than news articles. So it's definitely a change going to newsletters and smart brevity and and bullets. But uh, you know, I think it's a really efficient way to to deliver information. I mean, you certainly sometimes yeah. for certain kinds of pieces, something can be lost of the kind of writerly. Um, you know, narrative arcs, things like that. Sure. But, you know, it's people are busy and people want to get the information they need when they need it. And uh, so I really enjoy the, you know, making that happen. That's awesome. I love it. Okay. So, so Jackson Hole, now listeners of, of, of this podcast uh, don't need any intro to the basics kind of of what, of what Jackson Hole is or, or, or it's, or it's basic history. Um, but I, but you've been uh, many a time and I just wanted to, to ask if, if this time, if there was anything either new about the location or the activities uh, that kind of stuck out this time or were unique this time uh, that made this Jackson uh, maybe kind of unrelated specifically to to Powell speech or anything, but but just being there. Was there any anything new this year? So the things that don't change uh, in the time, yeah. at least that I've I've uh, I went for the first time in 2007. Uh, not been every year, but but I think uh, this is my ninth time we counted up um, since 2007. So what does not change is <laughs> the location, the you know the, the majestic views of the Grand Tetons from from Jackson Lake Lodge. Yeah. Uh, even the, I don't believe they've really changed the kind of rhythm of the weekend, you know, when, yeah. what happens on what evening and, and when the sessions start, things like that. I mean, I, there may have been small changes, but even that seems about the same as it's been for at least in my span of, of attending this. Um, and and a lot of the people are the same, you know, I mean, it's okay, obviously sure. there's change, there's turnover, uh, you know, some of the old stalwarts uh, passed away, uh, Alan Meltzer used to be there every year and Marty Feldstein, a few others. Um, but, you know, there are definitely some faces who I recall seeing 15 years ago the first time <laughs> I went, oh, there's Alan Blinder, you, you mentioned yeah. earlier. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and, you know, I think there is some continuity that's that's really neat. And that's, you know, part of what has made this event special and, and made it occupy this unique role in the kind of uh, Federal Reserve central banking economics uh, ecosystem. Uh, I think that continuity matters a lot. Um, yeah. And so, so again, that stuff hasn't really changed. The things that were different this year, so it had been, uh, you know, this is the first time in person in three years. It was virtual for 2020 and 2021 because of the pandemic. Um, you know, it was uh, Esther George, the president of the Kansas City Fed, her last year as Kansas City Fed president, she's hitting mandatory retirement age. So this time next year, there will be a new, presumably president of the Kansas City Fed uh, in charge of this event. Uh, so she's kind of the host on her, you know, yeah. her way out. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's also notable that 
this not since the very beginnings of this this event back in the early 80s has this occurred in a time when high inflation was the predominant concern and i think that really shaped the a lot of the discussions and a lot of the the tone of the entire weekend yeah and so kind of briefly what was the what were the vibes in the in the in the policy world? Uh, you know, it's a, most of it has been summarized, and and it might have even been you that did this. Is just hawkish vibes, not just in Powell's speech, but but just at the conference, there was this inflation just kind of overhanging the 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 event. Is that am I interpreting that or remembering that right? What was your? I think you are. Yeah, question? I mean that's. I mean the, the only exceptions, uh, central bankers out of Japan and, and South Korea both sure. spoke and you know, where inflation is less of a pressing concern in their countries. And so they, they have different set of problems. But for, for all of the European and, and North American officials there, the tone was uh, that, you know, this inflation is, is at, you know, approaching crisis levels. And we as central bankers, it is our job to prevent that from happening. And yes, you can say it's supply challenges, it's energy disruptions, it's Ukraine, it's the pandemic, uh, all of these kind of one-off things causing it, but ultimately with our obligation to bring demand in line with aggregate supply. And, yeah. um, you know, just because these uh, problems are rooted in, in supply side challenges does not mean we can sit on our hands and, and, um, and ignore it. And, um, you know, you heard that in, uh, you know, certainly Chair Powell's speech, but, but uh, what uh, Isabel Schnell of the ECB, uh, Augustine Carson's of the BIS, you know, yeah. across the board, you heard this tone. Yeah. And is and that was the that what was the kind of bring us both. I want to talk about the evolution because it's only been I guess a week and a half or, or maybe maybe coming <laughs> on two weeks. But I feel Time like we've been it does. The, the, the cycle is just up and down every day. But I want you to kind of, if you wouldn't mind, maybe walk us through kind of that cycle of the market's reaction as well as just you know commentators in general about. Uh, this this over hawkishness or this this new hawkishness maybe it wasn't new but there was this initial reaction and then there were a couple of days and it's gone up and down maybe just a few highlights that that you've been yeah, following I mean, as you've been watching them interpreting kind of this same the same speech so if you look at Jay Powell's speech on uh, I believe it was August twenty seventh um, sure. you know it was the Friday morning um, it was so it was a different tone than most of his Jackson Hole speeches. We I calculated these numbers. It was thirteen hundred words or so. Right. Normally right. he does you know twenty five hundred words, three thousand words, something like that. It was short. It was direct. It was inflation's too high. We're going to bring it down. We're determined to do that. Um, it didn't. It wasn't very academic. It was. It was yeah. aimed. I, I believe it was aimed at you know less at the hundred central bankers in that room who, you know, he didn't cover any new intellectual ground in that speech. Right. I think it was aimed at the potentially millions of people who was who were going to see a headline on, you know, in the Wall Street Journal or on the Chiron on CNN that says, uh, you know, Fed chief colon, we are determined to bring inflation down. I think it was a, it was, you know, he was taking advantage of the fact that there's so much media attention, so much focus on this speech to, yeah. to deliver a very crisp, clear message of hawkishness to the world. And that was partly a corrective to uh, a, a kind of interpretation of the previous press conference at the end of July that yeah. was uh, that it kind of circulated markets that, oh, you know, they're they're ready to back off. Inflationary trends are, are easing. This is, um, you know, so I think that was part of the, the incentive. So if you look at what markets did that day, the stock market was way down that Friday of the Powell speech. Um, uh, was it 3%, I think, on the S&P? Yeah, yeah. Um, Interestingly, bond yields didn't move that much. Um, you know, it's almost a situation where 
you know, the fixed income markets had had, had a reasonable view of, of what direction the Fed was going. Stock market was, was maybe not priced um, quite right for that hawkishness. Um, and that really continued the following week, especially after Neil Kashkari uh, gave a, did an interview with the Odd Lots pod, podcast from Bloomberg, um, where he basically said, it doesn't bother me that the stock market went down in response to Powell's speech. So, you know, Kashkari's, you know, um, he, he speaks pretty frequently. It's not like he's, uh, you know, speaking necessarily for leadership, but I think that was a sign to markets that, oh, yeah, it's not like anybody the Fed's sitting around worrying that there's a market sell-off because of the speech. We're not going to get the Fed put come in and and, and reverse right. itself. Yeah. And so we've had you know a pretty sustained um, uh, drop in equity markets the last uh, you know week or two. Uh, yields are up too, so that's that started to creep into the fixed income markets. Some, you know, just today uh, we got an interesting speech from Lil Brainer, the vice chair. That was in some ways balanced, but I but it struck me as totally different from Powell's speech in some important ways. And mm -hmm. the most important to me is that she raised the possibility of overshooting, and that you know because of the lagged effects of monetary policy, it is possible you know that at some point we'll have two-sided risks, and that yes, there will be continued inflation risk, but there's also the risk of doing too much and causing you know more of a downturn, more of a recession than is than is necessary to bring inflation down. You know, Powell did not do that. He did not have that. Mm -hmm raise that possibility of an off-ramp um, for, for, for kind of ending the tightening cycle. Um, Brainerd did. Is she a little more dovish than Powell right now? You know, probably. Is she broadly in line with what they're doing? Yes. Um, you know, she had some of the same tough talking on inflation, but, but it is a slight uh, kind of um, layer of, of, of complication to the hawkish narrative. Yeah, agree. The, this the language that I'm sure will come up more and more in the future that I noticed for the first time, not that it was, it was actually the first time, but bringing back this balance of risks kind of language that as we get, as those risks start to, to, to come in, I think will come more of the conversation. In well, I don't the, think anybody thinks they're there now, uh, at sure. least on the committee, sure. but, um, but there will come a day, right? Yeah. Um, you know, is that day in, uh, you know, in early 23, is that day in late 23, 24? We don't know when that day is going to come. You know, there's a lot, of, the economy is going to change in, in countless ways. But I think it's interesting to hear somebody with Brainerd's, with Lael Brainerd's seniority, just mentioning that that is, you know, if you if you just keep raising interest rates uh, forever, you will, by definition, you know, uh, overshoot and, and drive the economy into a recession. Sure, 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 sure. And they're going to have to start. Yeah. And they'll start talking about it internally. And then they'll, when it starts to come out in speeches and then minutes and or we'll be on the on, on the big roller coaster for that. I wanted to ask you, there's an interesting and this came up and there was this whole kerfuffle about Kashkari's comments uh, on Odd Lots, the first wave. And then there was this like media, social media kind of reaction, kind of misquoting him a little bit. And then there was a, a recorrection based on that. And there's this interesting psychology that I want, I, I'd like you to, to, to comment on if you don't mind, this weird psychology that the Fed is in. And I think that you said it perfectly in describing the goal that Chair Powell had and the way that that goal of getting his message to all of America and, and beyond the world or and around the world uh, of this kind of this hawkish tone that he knew he'd have a chance. He doesn't have very often to really spread it. And that is this this idea that inflation is a is a kind of a uh, ethereal thing that's about 
how people think about where the future is going to go. And so the Fed is trying to make people think that it might be worse. And then if people actually think it will be worse, then they'll change their actions. And then maybe it actually won't be as bad. I'm kind of not making any sense at all. But there's this weird psychology going on, especially in the communications from from the Fed. And I wonder if you have any any thoughts or any comments on that. Well, I think what's going on is uh, they are they really do not want inflation psychology to become entrenched. And we can call it whatever you call it inflation expectations, call it sure. psychology of inflation, call it um call it vibes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, what they really don't want to happen is uh, to enter a world where, you know, so on the labor side, workers think, you know, I, I deserve a 10% raise every year. And employers are like, well, I guess, I guess I got to give people a 10% raise because, you know, sales have been good. And, you know, it's like price, prices for everything keep rising. So, um, you know, if you have, if you have 10% nominal wage increases across the economy, I can guarantee you, you're going to have inflation that's far above the 2% target. Right. Sure. Um, you know, uh, so, so, you look, you can believe a, a hard or less hard version of this story that expectations matter. Um, you know, is it is it really the case that looking at a couple of ticks on the University of Michigan consumer sentiment, uh, how people say their their three to five year inflation expectations? Like, I you know nobody would want to put too much weight on 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 measures like that. But the idea that um, the idea that if people think things are entering a rocky period for the economy they're going to engage in less inflationary kind of behavior um, seems clearly true, right? Um, you know, I, I'm in the market for a car right now. I need a new sure. car, but, yeah. you know, I realized how much rates have risen and, and yeah. you know, maybe I, I, I'm driving the old car for an extra few months, um, yeah. uh, you know, and that's, and that's part of the goal, right? I'm, I'm exactly. not contributing to, to that demand because yep. uh, things are looking a little bumpier in the economy because rates are higher. So that's you know, higher cost of borrowing. Um, you know, that's how the, that's how this whole thing works. <laughs> and it's not just a literal, you know, as, as reporters, we often want to tell a literal story of, oh, you raise rates and it raises, you know, mechanically changes asset values. And sure. it's, yeah, that's part of it. But part of it's, um, you know, having some influence over the, the, the broad kind of shape of people's expectations for the future. And that uh, then can inform everything, including wage behavior and all the other stuff we just talked about. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's why there's a whole industry of uh, the, the Fed watching industrial complex as I don't know, I don't remember who coined that that term, but it's a, uh, it's really important. And it's and there is it's not like you said, it's not as easy as just uh, a simple, a simple formula. And then back to what you, you, know, you mentioned the cash carry talk. Yeah. You know, so so the um, Fed officials hate it when you say, oh, they're just targeting the stock market because they don't target the stock market. They don't have a goal for what they want the S&P to be at. Yeah. Um, you know, but <laughs> but they do care a lot about financial conditions, and they yeah. do believe that one of the way again, if you want, to, let's use the word vibes instead of, instead yeah, of please, expectations. Please, if please. they want to, you know, shape the vibes, yeah. um, the way they do that is through adjusting the interest rates, which in turn affect financial conditions. Now, in a lot of ways, the the stock market is just the most visible, easy to monitor version of financial conditions. Like if the stock market goes up, that means financial conditions loosened. And vice versa, and so and 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 the stock market is on every you know every TV, every newspaper, every yep. day. Yep. So you know the 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 triple A to you know to to triple B uh, yield spread in the corporate debt market yeah. is another form way of measuring financial conditions. But you yeah. can't check that on the front page of every newspaper every day. Whereas yep. the stock market, you can. So I, I actually, if if you think less of no, the Fed doesn't target the stock market. 
they do want to make sure financial conditions are moving in the direction they're intending. And lately that has been toward tightening. And during a lot of July, that was not happening. And so that's why we've heard some of this hawkishness out of Powell, I, I believe. Yeah. And we've got, and we've got a couple of things uh, uh, coming, coming up. And so I now want to just uh, for a few minutes, just look forward a little bit uh, tomorrow. We're recording this on Wednesday, September 7th in the afternoon. And uh, tomorrow uh, September 8th uh, in the morning, Powell will give a speech at the Cato Institute Monetary Con Monetary Conference um, at nine in the morning. And then, and Neil, you're actually going to do a, a panel uh, at, at 11:30. So if you're listening to this before, uh, log in. If if you listen to it after, go back and find the find the recording. Um, but but be, so we've got those events in the next couple of days. Then the blackout period starts, and so we won't hear from from folks in the FMC for um, you know 10ish days before that meeting. Um, but what are we looking for? What are you looking for? What are you what are you looking at in in then in the next yeah two weeks? I guess it'll be I guess it'll be in two weeks exactly when the uh, when the when the next meeting results are announced and the press conference happens. So the only data point in that span that's really salient for for policy or sure. really likely to kind of potentially adjust their policy view is the CPI number for August that comes out uh, next week, which is okay. before the meeting but during the blackout period. So we right. won't have any kind of Fed talk speeches addressing it. Yeah. That said, it's one month of CPI. We got a pretty benign reading in, uh, for July. You know, we'll, right. we'll, we'll see what that looks like. So not a ton of data. Um, right. You know, we were, again, by the time this is out, people can can see what Jay Powell had to say at, at Cato. Yeah. Um, I will say that is a Q&A format, not a speech. So, um, oh, you know, good. it's an interesting oh, I hadn't thing. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting, like, interesting. Uh, you know, when, when it's a speech, such as in Jackson Hole, uh, Powell can go out and deliver exactly the message he wants to deliver with the wording being, you know, highly yeah. vetted, highly thought through. Um, and of course, he prepares carefully for everything. Of course, he's, got he's, his a, book. he's a very prepared, hardworking, you know, yeah. uh, person. Um, but, you know, with the press conferences, with something like a Q&A like we have tomorrow, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, what gets asked can shape totally. the tone of the message. And I think that's where they got in a little bit of trouble at the July press conference yeah. where it came across as, it came across as quite dovish. Um, I'm not sure that was really intended. That that may have been uh, that just the mix of the questions that got answered, yeah. the things that Powell chose to emphasize in those answers. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that introduced a little bit of randomness to things. Um, that said, uh, you know, look, the message from Jackson Hole was loud and clear. Uh, Yep. You know, I I tend to think, I mean, they, they've officially, the official line has been, they might do 50 basis points, they might do 75. Um, I think, you know, to, to deliver that speech in Jackson Hole and then not do 75. And then under, and then under. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, um, I, I, I have a hard time seeing that, you never know. But um, uh, anyway, so that's that's yeah. kind of what we're looking at the next two weeks heading into this next policy meeting. Do you mind if I ask the the Q and A? That was something I hadn't that I hadn't picked up on uh, when I when I registered for to to watch the event. Is that uh, that doesn't seem? I mean, not that there's anything notable about this one instance where he's doing a Q and A, but that does that happen very often? I it, it doesn't where the 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 chair does a Q and A outside of a uh, a press conference or outside of a a, a speech at a at an economic conference. Yeah, he's, done, that, he's done several done of these. Those. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's done. Um, in fact, I did one of them with him um, at the Council on Foreign Relations in 2019. You know, I think he likes to do different formats. I, I think um, you know sometimes a formal set piece speech can be 
um, you know, it can be good, but it can be, uh, you know, it can be too formal. I think yeah. having an ability yeah. to kind of um, back and uh, forth, have a back and forth, I think, yeah. uh, you know, and I think, I think Powell enjoys this stuff. I think he, he yeah. Yeah. I think he perceives that he's a good communicator and um, not, I know not everybody on Wall Street would agree, but I, sure. I think sure. he sees it as a very, um, you know, efficient way of, 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 you know, sharing his message with the world and trying to kind of guide expectations in constructive ways. Um, not that there haven't been some some mess ups uh, over the years, but um, sure. uh, that's that's kind of a strategy. Awesome. Okay. Well, any uh, any last minute uh, last minute comments as we as we wrap up here? Any any final takeaways on on Jackson Hole or or or, or reporting on the Fed uh, on the Fed and and broader broader macro stuff? No, it's, it's a fascinating time to follow this stuff, and I, I gather anybody listening to to this podcast is is pretty uh, attuned to to these issues. But um, you know, I, I was I was started on this beat in two thousand seven during a yeah, time amazing. when um, you know we were heading into a massive crisis, uh, you know, rooted in the financial system. It's a very different environment now. We're uh, in a very different economy than the twenty tens. Uh, you know, that recurring thread out of Jackson Hole was that this uh, these kind of rolling supply shocks of uh, pandemic climate related things, um, you know, certainly the, the war and, and energy problems that that's not going away and that we might be in a world of, uh, of greater volatility on the supply side and that that's going to make managing the demand side of the economy, um, for, for central bankers a lot harder. Uh, it also creates an endless list of, uh, of stories for, uh, for me to write about in access yeah, macro. Right. macro. That's right. Okay. Final question. Uh, the federal reserve in right now is getting the appropriate amount of attention, uh, too much attention or too little attention as relates to um, economic vibes. <laughs> you know, if you had asked me um, 20 years ago, I would have said too little. Um, yeah. But I, yeah. think, I think the Fed coverage is excellent today. And yeah. I think, you know, yeah. anybody who wants to have um, you know, and that and that spans from more mass market publications sure. um, to to specialty publications. You know, there is an endless um, amount of information available if you want it in understanding this institution that you know really does shape the economic lives of millions and millions of people. And um, you know, we 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 have a I think a very good product that goes out every day that's free that uh, that you can have in your inbox. Um, you know, if you want if you want every single thing that happens, you know, Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal have numerous excellent reporters uh, uh, focused on this stuff. They, they produce an enormous amount of content. Sure. Um, you know, great Fed reporters at the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Washington Post, yeah. a lot of these places. And so, um, yeah, I think it is a golden age of, uh, no disrespect to our to my predecessors on, on this beat. I, plenty of great reporters from uh, from earlier yeah. eras, but I think um, the the menu of options you have available to you to follow the stuff is is large and that's a good thing. Could not agree more. Okay, listeners, uh, sign, uh, uh, links to to sign up for Axios Macro is are in the the show notes as well as a, a link to the to the conference tomorrow where where Powell will be speaking as well as Neil will have a panel, um, and then I'm going to also include a, a link to to Neil's book The Alchemist, which I was flipping through the my copy and rereading the parts that I highlighted this morning. So so definitely grab that if you haven't. Uh, Neil is at Neil underscore underscore Irwin, and I'm at Caleb Nygaard on Twitter. Neil, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Caleb. It was a lot of fun. See everybody next time.